Welcome to Chapter Chat Online Book Club. I'm Carrie. And I'm Michael. We are speech language pathologists who are passionate about developmentally appropriate practice. Each week, we discuss one chapter from a book related to optimal child development and education reform. Thanks for joining us. And enjoy the show. Hey, Mike, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Very good. Very good. We are back uh, for another episode of Chapter Chat. My favorite place to see you is in front of that bookshelf well, yeah, yeah. and not in, a, not in a hotel room. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I am not traveling right now, so I am home sitting in my little recording studio. Uh, Mike and I can see each other. You guys, of course, are listening in your car or at the gym or wherever it is you listen to podcasts. And Mike and I are uh, jumping into chapter two of our current book club selection. And Mike, why don't you tell everybody what the name of the book is? Sure. So the book is called Let the Children Play. Uh, it's by one of our uh, previous authors who, uh-huh. wrote, who wrote Finnish Lessons, uh, Posse Salberg and William Doyle. Yep. Uh, and this is really uh, diving really deep into the power of play, what the research shows about play, what we're currently seeing in today's world with the, the disappearance of play. Yeah. Uh, so this really goes really deep, really deep uh, into the just true play as an activity, as a benefit. Uh, and it's been amazing so far. This is really, this is really speaking to our souls. It really is. You know, and I have, as a professional speaker, I have a professional development course that I have been presenting since 2000, I think 10, so almost 12 years. And it is called the power of play. And I've revised it multiple times over the years. Uh, but it really speaks to my soul because as an early intervention provider, uh, I talk about the importance of play-based learning in early childhood. And one of the things that, uh, one of the themes, which I know is something you talk about a lot, Mike, especially on social media. And when we do our, our podcasts, our conversations is that play isn't something that stops when kids get to like elementary school, right? That play, and I love, I think it's actually chapter three, which we'll talk about next, that really goes into uh, the power of play, even in adolescence and in adulthood too. And that's something uh, that you talk about. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, this is something I was literally just talking to a parent about is, you know, we hear the word play and the first mental movie we think of is a kid playing with blocks or a yep. kid in, or a kid in the sandbox or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But you know, there's, there's mental play, there's, you know, problem solving, mm-hmm. visualizing the future, but we do this as adults, you know, when we go for a walk around the block or we sit in the back with our friends or, you know, or, you know, watch a game with a lot of our friends, that's play, you know, that's overall yeah. play. So play is, I, I don't care if you're five, 50 or 500 years old, <laughs> you have to play. And that's the essence of life. And that's what's well, that's to- what makes. Yeah, that's what makes us human too, right? Is that ability to, and you know, somewhere in here it talks about, you know, that actually most mammals do play. I mean, have you ever seen like a a deer frolicking in a, in a, in a puddle, you know, or, I mean, we have two little puppies and they play and, and it serves, you know, they do a lot of play fighting, right? So it's really, really fascinating when we get to chapter three and I don't want to jump ahead, but when we get to chapter three, it's called the learning power of play. So that's going to be a really intense chapter. And I have a feeling uh, that'll be a really uh, in-depth 
conversation. But we're on chapter two, and this chapter is called A Tale of Two Fathers. And so I just kind of want to give listeners, because uh, part of the reason Mike and I are doing this online book club is because we know you're so busy, you don't have time to necessarily read the book. So we are just kind of giving an overview of each chapter. And so The Tale of Two Fathers is about the two authors. And what is so fascinating about these two authors is that Salberg actually moved from Finland to the United States. And the other author, Doyle, he moved from the United States to Finland. And so there's kind of this role reversal, if you mm-hmm. will. Uh, isn't there like a, a show or there used to be a show called like Wife Swap or something? Yeah, you like yeah. <laughs> So it kind of makes me think of that. We're like these two um, uh, uh, family men, meaning they have wives and children, and they take their entire family and switch countries in essence. And so during this time, um, over a period of about five years, they are writing this book that we are currently reading. And they are are studying. They are studying the culture, you know, of the of the opposite country, if you will. And it's really kind of cool how much research went into uh, the writing of this book. And they talk about how this book is based on our field work, our interviews, our experiences as classroom observers of education systems and advisors to governments and schools around the world. And it also, they did an intensive review of historical literature and media reporting on play and childhood education. You guys listen to this, a review of over seven hundred articles published in peer-reviewed educational, medical, and other scientific journals is what formed the pillar of the writing of this book. So I just think it's so important that we explain this is evidence-based. You know, Mike and I are both speech-language pathologists, and we come from an evidence-based profession. So this isn't fluff. This isn't the opinion of Mike and Carrie, right? This is, and this isn't even just the opinion of the uh, authors, Salberg and Doyle. This is evidence-based information. So so um, along with the peer-reviewed, you know, journal articles and all of the other uh, research they did, they also did um, a wide range of one-on-one qualitative interviews, okay? So I think it's important to recognize the, the depth of the research that went into this. Yeah, absolutely. And as we learned from one of our previous book, Finnish Lessons, mm-hmm. is a lot of this research actually took place in America. This is American-based research uh-huh. showing the positives of Finnish education and showing the negatives of American education. So this is American tax dollars, American grants, American research, American corporations or or foundations, Mm -hmm. educational foundations doing this research, showing the power of play. But here we are in the number one country (laughs) in the world where play is disappearing. It is disappearing. And in my play course, um, I always say, have you noticed that play is disappearing from our homes, from our neighborhoods, from our childcare centers, and it has all but from, disappeared from our schools, right? It is disappearing. Uh, and so it is It is very concerning. And whenever your daughter, who is just over a little over a year old now, yeah. right? Whenever I have a reason to, I do send her gifts and they're always yeah. either toys or books because I am such a proponent of, of you know, play-based learning. But it's also really important that we recognize that while there are store-bought toys, you know, how important, you know, and we love that, that play doesn't have to be commercialized, right? It doesn't have to be about stuff you go and buy. Play is more of a state of mind. And somewhere in this chapter, they actually talk about that, that play is often used as like a verb, you know, oh, he's Mm -hmm. playing with blocks or he's playing with his trains or he's, you know, playing outside. That's, that's great. But play is this idea of being able to, Uh, drive your own learning, right? This ability to um, be able to be intrinsically 
motivated. And isn't that powerful, that intrinsic motivation that comes from learning through play? Um, so yeah, the other thing the, re- the the authors talk about in this chapter is that on top of all of the research that they've done, they believe that their um, uh, uh, time spent in the most uh, advanced laboratory on child development is the most powerful, and that is the playground, right? As fathers observing their children, raising their children, and, and being able to observe um, exactly what it means to uh, grow up and, and, and be human. So um Let's go ahead and jump into this chapter. I have to say, Mike, page 19, there is an acronym. Everybody loves acronyms. I'm assuming you had that that acronym uh, highlighted as well. Just so you guys know, as the listeners, Mike and I don't really talk about what we're going to talk about. We just hop (laughs) on. We both have read the chapter and we just sort of go for it. But I I, I think Mike and I know each other pretty well. We know what's going to strike a chord uh, with the other person. So um, one of the things that we have to overcome in our society, at least here in the United States, is this idea that play is frivolous purposeless activity. Um, I feel like I, I I always say I'm a defender of play. I truly mm. have to defend play because play is not valued as a modality for learning. Okay. So what the authors say in this, they give a note to the reader and they say, many of you will say that school is for learning, not for playing. And part of the reason there is this conversation that we have to have is because we have a tough time actually defining the word play right? It's mm. very hard. There is an actual journal, Mike, and I can't remember if I've talked to you about this or not, but it's called the American Journal of Play. And there's the International Journal of Play. And they are both, you know, peer reviewed evidence-based journals that come out um, quarterly. And um, that that is one of the things they talk a lot about is we would love a working definition of play, but nobody can agree on one definition because yep. it's so yep. broad, right? Mm-hmm. And it can be used as a verb and it can be used as a noun. And so there's so many different ways to interpret that. That word. Uh, and so because it's difficult to define, it makes talking about the power of play kind of a fuzzy yeah. conversation. It's the so, same thing with same thing with executive functioning. Depending, oh, at, depending on who you ask, you're going to get a different definition of yep. what it is. And a lot of professionals really are just going to list out the different executive function skills. Mm-hmm. And that's not a definition. That's not helpful. Mm-mm. And that's Mm-mm. what causes these kids to be sent to inappropriate and ineffective therapies. Right. Uh, and, you know, it's just yet another connection between EF and play. Yeah, absolutely. And you're just, oh, Mike's going to tell you, when we get to chapter three, listeners, you are in for a treat because <laughs> I kind of skip, skipped ahead and looked a little bit at chapter three and the word executive, the term executive function is used dozen, at least a dozen times. So I'm like, it, Mike is an executive function specialist, so I can't wait to hear his take on, on chapter three. But I love this acronym that they talk about on page 19, if you happen to be reading along with us. Um, it says, every time you hear the word play, so what the, mm-hmm. the author say is forget the word play because play is a problem for so many people, right? Parents will say, why does speech therapy, why do you just play in speech therapy, right? Why are they just playing um, in daycare? I thought, you know, I I want someone to teach my child, not just let them play. So the authors say, look, forget the word play. And here's what we want you to do. Replace it with a phrase that is in fact a more exact definition of the process of play in the educational context. So here it is. You ready? The acronym is SEED, S-E-E-D. And it stands for systematic exploration, experimentation, and discovery. How? Absolutely perfect. Perfect. Perfectly done. This is Posse at his best. It is. So you you could not have put it into a better acronym. You could not have summed it up in a better word because play play literally is 
planting, planting seeds. Oh, see, it's thank plant, you. It's, it's planting seeds. It is literally, like, this could not have been better. I, I know. I, I underlined I it like 10 times yep. as and soon I as I saw it. Circles. It's that's yeah. that's genius. That is the, that is, is that is that is nothing short of genius. So and I want to repeat it for the yeah. listeners. Systematic exploration, experimentation and discovery. S E E D. So when anyone tries to say, no, we can't play, we don't have time for play. Yep. We, I'll never forget um, this kindergarten teacher that I was talking to. And she was explaining to me that they had to close the blinds in the kindergarten classroom because they didn't have time to build in recess or play in kindergarten. And the kids were pining for all the playground equipment. So they had to close the blinds. So they didn't even have natural light in the classroom oh because they God. couldn't let the kids look out the windows because they were pining, literally pining for play. And that she said, with Common Core curriculum, we don't have time to build and play into a oh, kindergarten my curriculum. Gracious. Oh, like, that is what what is the world coming to, Mike? Do you ever just wonder, like, and, uh, what is school going to look like for your daughter, for Eden? Like uh, when she, I mean, I can't even. She's a year old right now. Yeah, yeah, it, that that is terrifying. Like, what wh- what are those kids doing now? Those kids that were yeah. pining to go outside and, and had to close. Yeah. No natural light, no yeah. ability to move. Right. I would love to see the statistics of you know a longitudinal study of uh-huh. how many how many of those kids ended up developing anxiety disorders, right, right. or sensory dysregulation, yep, or yep. or ADHD, whatever right. it may be. Right. Uh, but right. that's that is just terrible. But this this whole it concept is. of changing the title from play to seed. That's you know <laughs> like uh, oh oh he's participating in seed. He's doing yep, a yep. seed activity. He's doing this. So, you know, that's absolute genius. And, you know, we get this as, as SLPs all the time, especially in sure. early intervention is, oh, you're just playing with him. You're just playing. Right. You're just right. playing games with him. But that's not what it is at all. We're giving them a fresh, unique experience and we're giving them systemic exploration, experimentation and discovery, which in its terms is varied experiences varied experiences and interpersonal yes. relationships absolutely which is something uh, you talk about all the there, time and that's mm-hmm. what it is that's exactly yeah. what seed is but seed yeah. is just a much more uh much more professional term than yeah than I, I love use. it I uh, love so it. so this is this is great i love it yeah it's really wonderful so when um doyle the american author went over to finland he said okay well well actually both of the authors said we were in shock so we went to each other's countries right posse salberg came to the united states william doyle went to finland and as we've talked about in some of our other episodes uh finland is one of uh, the many countries that doesn't provide any formal academic instruction until the age of seven right there's no school related stress there's really no homework to speak of no standardized test per se. Um, And there's lots and lots of play throughout that early childhood education. So um, what's interesting then is here in the United States, um, something much different uh, uh, is happening. The other thing that, again, we have brought up in previous episodes, but in Finland, the actual, they have a government policy. I mean, it's really fascinating to me that it is a Finnish government regulations require um, that uh, children are guaranteed a 15-minute free play outdoor yep. recess after each 45-minute lesson every single day all the way to high school. Yep. Uh, and so it's really fascinating. It says daycare and childhood education before age seven is based on learning to take responsibility for one's own one's own actions and behavior, learning to be with other children through play with no stress or formal academic pressure to learn to read and write unless children want to. So I really appreciate that. Don't you, Mike? Because don't you think there are people who say, but my daughter is showing an interest in reading or my son is showing an interest in writing. Well, sure. If there is a an intrinsic motivation, we wouldn't stop that. Of but course. that's a lot different from saying it's part of the 
curriculum. Yeah, and it's not going to take up so much of their day. And there's a big difference between showing an interest in something yeah. and turning it into something that's going to be graded and valued. And, and that's scored. forced. And, and that's it's forced. forced. And, yeah, and, absolutely. And we're constantly, and instead of letting them to learn through play, like reading is, uh-huh. if you think about it, reading is play and uh-huh. writing is play. But when we're constantly looking, okay, oh, now we need to give them a more challenging book. Right, now we need right. to measure their vocabulary. Mm-hmm. We need to see how many questions they can answer about the book. Then we're, then we're taking the play away and we're making it more cognitive hypothesis based. Yeah, so if, if we allow the kids to learn based on their own exploration and discovery, they're naturally going to start gravitating towards more advanced books and on learn, their at, own. And, and learn mm-hmm. at their own pace. See, and isn't that the beauty of learning is learning should be individualized because yep. we're all wired differently, right? We all perceive things differently. We, I mean, some kids need multiple repetitions to learn something. Um, you know, I mean, individualized instruction should be the key for all children. I just very much appreciate at the very top of page 22, it says, play is one of the main means of instruction and learning. And I just think that's really powerful. It's a modality for teaching. Play is, right? And there's mm-hmm. two, when you think about play, there's child-directed play and there's adult-guided play, right? Yep. So we're not saying it all has to be, it's not a free-for-all where children should just do whatever they want whenever they want. People who don't understand the power of play-based learning assume that um, when we say, you know, child or uh, a play-based learning, that it just means kids get to do whatever they want. There's exactly. still some guidance in there. And, and this is where the, this is where the relationships come in. This is yep. what, why it's you know we're trying to give kids varied experiences instead of that free for all where they're only doing one or two things. Right. When they have interpersonal relationships with other peers and the adults in the room, when adults are trained to get on the kids' level, right. And you know talk about their you know use a little declarative language and talk about what they're seeing and what they're wondering and uh, and you know the this is a lot of things that. People that naturally gravitate into the speech and language field and mm-hmm. OTPT, you know, a lot of us are just natural at sort of being able to build relationships with kids sure, and, sure. and put ourselves on their level and understand their thinking. And that's true uh, adult directed play. It's not go do this, go do that. Right. It's showing an interest like kids mm-hmm. naturally want, kids can tell when people care about them and sure. care about care about their best interests and are fun to be around and give off positive energy. And that's what we do. And we can pull kids into new experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, it is just so interesting uh, when, when we really think about the power of play-based learning and yet how how negative so many people, you know, uh, they, they view it as a negative. Um, you know, why do you just play? One of the things that I think when you're talking about, you know, uh, adult guided play, the word I like to think of as scaffolding, you know, mm. is that we're scaffolding. Mm-hmm. So we're mm-hmm. we're not directing. So here's, here's one of the examples I give the families that I support is think about the difference between being a play director and being a play partner. So a play director, is um, directing the play. Go get the green block, put it on the table. Now get the red block. That's not red, that's blue. Go get the, go Go put that, go get the truck, go put it in the, and then they're also peppering them with um, test-like questions. What color is it? How many are there? What does a dog say? What does a cow say? You know, so they're giving commands. They're using a lot of imperative language instead of declarative language, right? Which is what our last book that we, uh, one of the, a couple of books ago, we talked about the importance of declarative language. So when we're, we're scaffolding learning through play. It's not about being a play director. It's about following the child's lead, meeting them where they're at, and then very slowly encouraging them um, to uh, advance their skills, but in a way that, um, that, that is meaningful and relevant, 
right? It's scaffolding. It's not do this, don't do that, do it this way, you're wrong. It is about supporting and guiding and enhancing. And, and so that's what we do. So we don't ever just play. Um, uh, what we do is we play with a purpose, right? That's what yeah. I do as a therapist. That's what we do when we um, help parents figure out how to, how to support their child's learning and development through play. And that's what we're, we're expecting teachers to be able to do, right, is be able to support learning and development through play. So my friend, uh, my friend Ryan, the ADHD dude, yes. he, he calls this phenomenon, you're talking about it. He, he describes kids as screaming for scaffolding. So oh. we're, see, we're seeing so much uh, dysregulation and so much noncompliance or whatever it may be. Uh, and these kids are really screaming for this adult scaffolding mm-hmm. to lead them into new things, lead right. them into independence, lead them into discovery, lead them into play. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of dysregulation around, you know, having to transition from screens or transition from the one or two things in their comfort zone. Right. And these kids are really screaming for scaffolding. Because they 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 need that authoritative uh, that authoritative yes. adult in their lives, as well as an adult that has uh, you know their best interests in mind. Pl- uh, you know, uh, uses effective calmness, mm-hmm. uh, uses the relationship to scaffold them into new experiences, so they can grow these skills. And you know what's interesting, Mike, is they may not consciously know it, but I'll tell you what their nervous systems are screaming for is varied mm. experiences, right? That's what their nervous systems are screaming for. Now, kids will tell you if they have to use their their word, they will say, I want to play video games. I want to sit in front of a screen, right? That's what they'll say to us. But what their nervous systems are saying to us is, hello, I need play-based movement. I need varied experiences. I need interactions. I need engagement, right? So even though the kids themselves may not be saying those words, I promise you that's what their nervous systems are screaming. So screaming for scaffolding, screaming for varied experiences. Um, And that's part of of what I think is so important about this digital age that we live in is we have to remember that children don't wake up in the morning and make decisions that benefit their development. That's right. Absolutely. If you left Eden to raise herself and say, okay, baby, if you want to just sit in here and, you know, um, stare at this, uh, you know, cartoon all day, if that makes you happy, then I'm going to let you do that. You wouldn't allow that. You wouldn't allow a one-year-old to do that, right? Well, we also can't expect children who don't have fully developed nervous systems. And we know, let's be clear, that the, the, the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed until about when, Mike? Around 25, 26 right. years old. Right, right. Yeah. So to suggest that human beings know what's best for them um, and will make decisions that are best for them, um, that's not true until you've had enough life experiences and until that prefrontal cortex, you know, becomes more fully developed. So it is important that we continue to guide uh, our, our older children, our adolescents, college age students, right? Into early. I mean, I have a 23 and 24 year old and my husband and I, we will frequently say, you know, we can't tell them what to do, but we want to provide guidance. That scaffolding is still happening, even though, you know, our daughters are 23 and 24 years old. They're both graduating college. They're living on their own, but they're they're still, they don't have the fully developed um, prefrontal cortex. So it is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And uh, this, this whole concept of uh, in, you know, being that adult to bring them into new experiences, that's something that a lot of parents today struggle with yeah. is, you know, there's so much focus now on keeping the kids comfortable. How can we keep mm-hmm. them comfortable instead of how can we introduce them to new things, help them develop new skills so they can live an independent life? Right. Uh, Push them out and, of their comfort zone, right? Yeah. And get them out of their comfort mm-hmm. zone. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and we see this because, we're seeing now so much stress 
from school. So like in the very beginning of the chapter on page 16, uh, Posse talks about going to the United States for the first time. And it says Posse entered a childhood and education culture that was increasingly based on stress, standardization, and deprofessionalization. So this is what we talk about all the mm-hmm. time. Uh, it's, it's no coincidence now that parenting has gone from authoritative to permissive, just as much as school has gone from a place of safety, <laughs> fun, and discovery to a place of stress and anxiety. So we, it, we talk about it on all our previous podcasts. What do kids say? I hate, I school. hate school. I hate school. I, I hate, hate school. school. There yes. you go. And that's what it is. So we're, you know we're see- yeah, go ahead. You know what's interesting? You talked earlier about use the term, the authoritative parenting style, which is mm-hmm. the, the, where you provide your, you know, there's connection. Um, there's, there's leadership though. There's guidance, there's support, but it is um, a two-way communication. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the authoritative parenting style, right? I feel like uh, here in the United States, yes, our education system has almost become the authoritarian, which is the one where it's, I'm in charge, do it because I said so. There's not going to be a conversation about it. Um, So on that same page, page 16, it said in Finland, in sharp contrast, so this is the paragraph after the one you just read, William Doyle, the other author, encountered a world-renowned childhood education system based on a strong foundation of learning through play and a system that provided for constant bursts of play and playful discovery in school all the way up to high school under the leadership, here it is, of highly professional, respected childhood educators. Unbelievable. Yeah. So the whole difference between American education and Finnish education is again revisited. If you haven't read um, Finnish Lessons, which is the, I think the third book, maybe the second book that we did in our, in our, in our series, um, make sure you take a look at that. Uh, Mike, back to page 22. Remember when I said um, that in Finland, kids get a 15 minute recess for every 45 minutes. Uh, They go on to say, oh, by the way, that when kids are taking their 15 minute breaks, teacher Teachers actually have a recess for teachers. They are not expected to do any lesson planning in that in that time. They are given these really nice, well-equipped teachers lounges where they can go and relax. They could go outside and go for a walk. So they're not expected to like get ready for something. So teachers. So what do you think that does for their mental health, Mike? When you think about it, right? I mean, it's just so beautiful to look at how Finland how Finland works. On page twenty three. They interviewed this uh, teacher, and her name is Lisa, and she is a kindergarten teacher here in the United States. And she explained that she's been teaching kindergarten and preschool for eight years. And in that time, all aspects of play and child-friendly learning had been eliminated in her work. She was now being compelled by state education officials to administer high-pressure standardized tests to children of four and five years of age and to apply grossly inappropriate premature academic pressure on her little students, all in the name of standards and rigor. Blows my mind. Me too. Blows my mind. Like, yep. like, and this is something I see all the time. So, being in private practice and working on executive functions, it's a lot of parents coming in and saying, "Oh, he just won't do his homework. He has these missing right. assignments." And outside of the sessions in the home, parents are constantly getting in fights with their kids about, about homework, it. test grades, these kinds of this things. meaningless stuff. And and me being this neutral third party who's not a member of the school, not a member of the family. You know, these, this, this mom and her son just got into a two hour huge fight over, you know, science homework over the periodic table. Mm -hmm. This kid doesn't care about the periodic table. Mm -hmm. And if he ends up going into work in chemistry, which most likely is not going to happen, he's going to have the internet at his disposal. Right. He's going to have a copy of the, of the, of the periodic table. He's going to be able to Google 
how many electrons, how uh-huh. many neutrons, how many electrons. <laughs> He's going to have that all there. And it, it, this this term grossly inappropriate. Yeah. Think about it. Think about all you parents out there that have careers right now. In your day-to-day of your job that gives you the money to provide for your family, how often are you using what you learned in middle school and high school? Mm-hmm. That this mm-hmm. It's grossly inappropriate. And this is what we do now is we force these teachers to teach to the test. Right. And we and we grade their performance based on students' performance to the test. So teachers can't be creative, they can't be fun, they can't be flexible. They have to focus on this one test that's created by politicians and upper level people right. to, to learn about competence and scores and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And it takes it sucks all the fun and the all joy. the love There's no joy. out of school. There's no joy. Yeah. It's terrible towards our most it vulnerable is. population, our children. Absolutely. And what they go on to say is, okay, so we've got this academic rigor in this country. It's the test and punish. It's the earlier is better. It's the cognitive hypothesis. So the assumption was that in the long run, yeah, it may be tough, but in the long run, our kids will do better, right? They're going to be ready for college and career. Uh, tell us about, Mike, uh, You this is something we brought it before. How does the United States fare in college dropouts? Oh, it would be number one in the world. (laughs) Number one in the world. Number one. So how are we doing, right? So they go on to say, um, the assumption was that America would be number one in international school rankings one day. Never mind the fact that there's no evidence to support this theory and that nearly 20 years of the earlier is better practices has resulted in little, if any, improvement in America's international test scores or in reducing domestic racial and economic achievement gaps in educational outcomes. Instead, they have accelerated in parallel with recent trends of declining childhood mental health and well-being. That's what we're doing. Okay. And and this is and this is really the the biggest thing that I think is really going to take all of this to a head is this massive decline in teenage mental health. Mental health. Uh, Even little kids mental health though. Terrible. Terrible. five-year-old be five-year-old be stressed. I mean, Terrible. I just don't understand. And if I've told this story before, I apologize. But this one, I was presenting um, on the East Coast somewhere and there was an occupational therapist in the training. It was my play training, my power play course. And she said, I just have to share this with you. She said, I have a five-year-old daughter in kindergarten and she came home from school and was very upset, crying. And when I finally got her calmed down and asked her what was wrong, she asked, um, mommy, can you please just get me a tutor? And first of all, why does a five-year-old even know the word tutor? And second of all, why would a five-year-old ever think they need one? She said, I'm so dumb, mommy. I'm so dumb. I need a tutor. Okay, this, what are we doing? You know what I mean? So in very young children, usually this will manifest as behavior in that they'll either say they have a tummy ache or, you know, it could be physiological, right? I have a tummy ache. I have a headache or just refusal. I hate school. I don't want to go to school. So on page 24, this is fascinating. Mike, it says, um, here we have um, in American schools, our young children are being forced to handle concepts they're unprepared for and made to feel like failures during a time in their lives when they should be, are you ready? Socializing learning to love school, and learning the foundations of literacy and other academics through play, teacher guidance, and an atmosphere of warmth and support. That's what early childhood should look at, and that's not what it's like. On page 25, the author, one of the authors, Posse Salberg, who had moved to the United States with his family, he said, um, in 2013, I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I took my three-year-old son to take a look at a local preschool said, man, was I shocked. Immediately, the director started asking me, well, how many words does he know? Excuse me, how many what? How many words? How developed is his vocabulary? How high can he count? 
I hadn't the slightest idea. My boy was barely three years old and I hadn't planned on figuring these questions out for at least another few years. Without warning, I had suddenly come face to face with a stunning new concept in American education. Are you ready? Preschool readiness. I'd heard of college readiness. I'd even heard of kindergarten readiness, but I'd never heard of preschool readiness. The director went on to say, we need to be sure he's ready for our program. We need to know if he can keep up with the rest of the class. We need to make sure all children are prepared to make the mark. Are you kidding me? I mean, unbelievable. I, I, I just, I just can't. So and he's, yeah. He, yeah. It's just, just overall, like what, what we are doing to our kids, it's almost like the perfect storm of shit mental health. Think about it. So we have this terribly broken education system that's causing kids to feel incapable, incompetent, lack of safety. Like we talk about safety in school. That's, an, that's another issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the kids feel uncomfortable in school. Number two, we have the disappearance of play. And number three, we have the rise of social media. So all of these things happening is it, it, it is it must be so hard to be a kid today. Oh, I to can't be even a, imagine to be a kid in 2022. And that sentence should never come out of someone's mouth. No, hard to be a kid. That should that should be the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, yeah, you would think so, right? Um, but we live in a world, at least here in the United States, okay, um, where uh, children are expected to be productively scheduled. So if a child isn't busy from morning till night, if a child doesn't lead an adult-paced life, then parents are assumed to not be doing enough for their kids, right? Whereas mm-hmm. when you and I were kids, and you and I are nowhere close in age, I mean, we're a good 15 or more years apart in age, and yet we both led childhoods that were very full oh, yeah. of child-directed play. There was a lot of boredom. Boredom is what leads to creativity and curiosity. You so, you know, uh, I think you and I talked about this in a previous episode, uh, you know, that, that both of us, if, you know, if I had to kind of um, explain my childhood in a sentence, it would be, we played outside and we rode bikes. I mean, and play for me was more about who I was with, not what toys I owned. I didn't own a lot of toys. I was born in 1971 nope. in Des Moines, Iowa. And uh, play wasn't about stuff. It wasn't, childhood had not yet been commercialized. Let's be clear that somebody's making lots of people are making a whole lot of money because oh, childhood yeah. has become commercialized now, right? So now every parent thinks, oh, I have to buy more stuff instead of really thinking about the fact that play is a state of being, right? It, it should be, it, it shouldn't be focused on, on uh, tangible uh, materials. So the, the author Posse goes on to say in Finland, Children learn largely through play, games, songs, and conversation until they are about seven, um, as they did in the United States until fairly recently. In Finland, the main question isn't, is the child ready for school? But, are you guys ready? Is the school ready for every child and ready to accommodate each child's differences? Okay. And he said, this is what I wanted to ask the director. How are you prepared to welcome our son here as he is? And what will you do to secure his well-being and happiness here? He said, I never had an opportunity to get that far because, you know, uh, all they cared about was how smart is he, right? How, how, how ready for school is he? Uh, so the chapter goes on um, and, and Posse Salberg continues to talk about the plight of education here in the United States. Uh, and um, uh, William Doyle uh, uh, talked about his experience in Finland and how, you know, drastically different it was uh, from here in the United States. On page 31, um, I really like that um, they kind of, the authors kind of talk about, you know, what what is the goal of education, right? What what is the goal? What are we what are we striving for? Mm-hmm. And so they kind of talk about uh, five 
ideas to consider. So I thought these were worth mentioning, Mike, because I like when they give us, isn't it nice when you're reading a book and they go, here are five things Couple to consider. I'm like, yep. okay, I like lists. <laughs> yeah. It helps my brain, right. you know, to kind of function. So uh-huh. let's um, uh, take, a, take a listen here to these five. The first one is to prepare and treat teachers like professionals with advanced graduate level, intensely clinical training in teaching theory and practice, childhood development, educational research and leadership. If you want more on that topic, please read Finish Lessons. Don't you think, Mike, that that book did a really nice job of outlining how they train their teachers? How they train their teachers and respect their teachers. Yeah, because they're uh, and, highly trained. Yeah. They're so highly trained there. Yep, yep. And, and, and there's a reason why you can go to schools all across the country in Finland and they're all exactly the same. It's not yeah. like it's not like in America going into a school in the inner city where there's school choice. A, exactly, yeah. where there's school yeah. choice. So you don't need school choice yeah. in Finland because every neighborhood school is um, as good as any other neighborhood school, and that is phenomenal. I mean, and it's unreal to even think about that as being a possibility because here in the United States, this is a huge topic. I want school choice. I want. School, I mean, we we sent our kids to private high school because we were not happy with the, you know, what was happening in, in the, um, in the public school system. And so, yeah, school choice, you know, we also homeschooled our kids for uh, different periods of time during their education because we had expectations that we felt like, you know, couldn't be met. I can't Mm -hmm. imagine living in a country where it didn't matter where you lived, where it didn't matter what your address was, where there was equity in all schools, regardless of socioeconomic status of the family. I mean, it's just amazing to think about. So first prepare and treat teachers like professionals and train them extremely well. In Finland, teachers are as highly regarded, if not more highly regarded than doctors. Okay. The other thing they did in Finland, um, there's a book, we haven't yet read it, Mike, it would be a good one. It's, it's, it's older, but um, I'll never forget this. It's called The Smartest Children in the World and How They Got That Way. And that is the book that really explains how countries like Finland and Poland, especially Poland, Poland went from being one of the, the worst educational uh, systems in the world to one of the best. And it's because they decided we better highly train our teachers. And so here in the United States, you can go to any university and become a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, in those countries, what they said is, oh no, we're going to make it very difficult. Only the best of the best are going to get into the teaching field. And so um, they won't just, you can't just be, everyone can't just become a teacher, right? It it takes a certain um, person, uh, just like everybody can't become a doctor. So anyways, you, you highly train your teachers. The second thing, Encourage schools and teachers to collaborate, not compete against one another. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? And that should, that should be music to the American teacher's ear. Seriously. Hearing that. And and I'm, I'm sure many of them who are not aware of how Finland does it, they hear about districts sharing information, uh-huh. districts sharing resources, teachers learning from each other. Mm-hmm. In America, it's almost like this district versus that district, yep. this teacher versus that teacher. Yep. Like we talk about anxiety for the student. How about anxiety for the teacher? Oh, can you even imagine? Remember, Mike, when you and I first started this this um, book club and I sent you something and it, it was, I think I got a letter or a text or an email and it said, um, these are the blue ribbon schools in Missouri. Oh, yeah. So I live in the state of Missouri and I was like, oh my God, so they're singling out. So these are the good schools, the blue ribbon schools and the rest of them basically suck, you know, to for lack of a better word. I'm like, I just can't believe this. And we do this thing where we have, you know, teacher of the year, which I know it's lovely for that one teacher, but why are we, why are we so? pitted against each other. In in Finland, I'm telling you, the neighborhood schools, they all work together. And if they find something that works, they collaborate. So it's not about our school is better than your school. Our score has higher test scores than your school. That's how it is in the United States, right? 
Where are the best yep. schools? Ooh, where do you want to buy a house? Oh, well, I need to find the better, the best school so that we can live in that neighborhood, right? Um, so uh, uh, encourage schools and teachers to collaborate. The third thing, fund and staff schools fairly and equitably. Wouldn't that be nice? Huh? Can you imagine? Oh, man. <laughs> Number four, give children a classroom atmosphere of warmth, support, and well-being instead of, here we go, the American way, stress, overwork, and fear. Unbelievable. And finally, I tell them, let the children play. Build your education system on regular periods of playful learning and discovery and indoor and outdoor physical and intellectual play from preschool to high school. Mike, how much do you love the term intellectual play? It's it's amazing. I that's, feel like that's the word you use that, that you, when you say mental men, play. Mental play. I, and that's yeah. what I think of. I'm like, oh my gosh, so we have physical play, which I yeah. think everybody understands. Running, yep. jumping, climbing, let's play chase, let's play hide and seek, right? Let's build with blocks, all that. But what about intellectual play? It, that just... I knew you would love that, Mike. And that's exactly it. what it is. And and, yep. and think about the youth of today. Can they really problem solve? Yep. Can they yep. really think on their feet? Can they be flexible? Can they improvise? There's no mental play. There's no intellectual play without a strong foundation of manual play. That's so right. It, they it go has, together. It has to be lots and lots of external if you want it to be internal. And as we see across the world, across the country, uh, across our neighborhoods, disappearing play disappearing boredom, mm -hmm. disappearing imagination, that's leading to a lot, a lot of problems down the road. And to add to it, disappearing varied experiences, there right? There just aren't varied experiences, okay? Nope. I mean, I, as an adult, I, and I forgot to put mine on this morning, but I have to wear a watch to remind me to move because if I sit at my computer for longer than an hour, my Apple watch says, excuse me, you've been sitting too long. You might want to take a little walk. So this is the world we live in. And we send kids to school and they are expected to sit for hours in front of their device that we have purchased them, right? Whether it's an iPad or a Chromebook or whatever. So uh, starting in kindergarten, kids um, often, most school districts have one-to-one -one devices, right? One one device per child so that they're, they're not only in front of the screen at home, but they are in front of uh, the screen at school. And I do like this. So Mike, let's move on to the last little section on page 34. It says, let children be children. Um, and it says, when politicians and technology vendors Ooh, here comes the money, right? And technology vendors talk about schools of tomorrow. Their ideas often do not penetrate far beyond familiar discussions of 21st century skills and digital learning, okay? Um, we need deeper insights into the critical role of play in schools to help inspire our thinking. So it says, while some technology platforms and products hold promise in helping teachers and students. So again, we're not saying technology is bad. We live in the digital age and Mike and I are not gonna sit here and say technology is bad in inherently bad because we wouldn't be doing this podcast if technology was inherently bad, right? Correct. If we didn't have this platform, we wouldn't be here. So we're not saying it's inherently bad. It does hold promise in helping, okay, uh, society. But he says, this book is not about education technology or blended learning or screen delivered personalized learning or digital learning or bringing your own device uh, to school. This is a book about play the flesh mm -hmm. and blood kind, right? Because you talk, Mike, about how you work with adolescents who say, but I have friends on social media, or, you know, I have friends that I game with, right? So, and you always talk about those friendships aren't the same as being in person, are they? Not in the slightest. There's been actual studies showing uh, what parts of the brain light up uh, uh, in terms of when you're doing face-to-face -face actual play versus play on Discord or uh -huh. play on Fortnite or play on Minecraft. And it's not the same. It's not the same uh, reaction. It is different. Yeah. And uh, us as SLPs, we're really big on language samples uh -huh. and, and, and seeing really the type of language being used. So when you're playing with someone in real life, 
it's crazy language. It's mm-hmm. great words per sentence, vocabulary, everything, interaction, uh-huh. back and forth, flexible, whatever. Mm-hmm. But when it, when you're on Discord or you're on Minecraft, it's literally language solely focused on the game. Give me uh-huh. that block. Give me that gun. Give me that do this, do that. So it's very directive, isn't it's, it? Then? It's directive. It's, it's, it's not true interpersonal dialogue. Wow. That's really fascinating, Mike. Mm-hmm. It really is. Very interesting. So on page 35, I just have to read this to you because I basically have this whole page highlighted, but I want to read this one (laughs) paragraph. Children are biologically engineered. Okay, I already love this, right? Children are biologically engineered for constant intellectual and physical play. They are designed to question, daydream, pretend, arrange block towers and dollhouses, wiggle, fidget, run, jump, laugh, cry, be frustrated, be absorbed, be bored, be creative, and above all, to be different. And they have much to teach us. Uh, There is a mathematician and researcher who was born in 1928. And he said, rather than pushing children to think like adults, we might do better to remember that they are great learners and to try harder to be more like them. Unbelievable. It's amazing. It's amazing. It really is. Through the eyes yeah. of children, right? How do yeah. they learn? Uh-huh. I mean, children are born to learn. Children, right? I mean, they're sponges. They are they come into this world ready to soak it all up and to learn. So play is not an aimless, random waste of time. When the power of play is, here's the key word, Mike. Are you ready for this? Properly harnessed and unleashed. It is, in fact, a basis of academic, emotional, and physical growth for a child. The life of a child is to play in and out of school. The life of a child is to play outdoors and indoors, to play with academic concepts, math and language, science, objects, drama, books, music, the arts, nature, sports, risk, tools, imagination, experimentation, trial and failure with guidance. There it is, with guidance from adults and completely on their own. Yet here we are on a global basis, systematically destroying destroying conditions for authentic play in childhood, in our schools, in our homes, and in our society, all in the name of education reform. Unbelievable. It, it's, it's, it's just, it's this quote, that quote by uh, Seymour Papert. So yes. ra- rather than pushing children to think like adults, we need to try harder to be more like them. Yeah. It's funny, that, that quote reminded me of one of my favorite shows because I'm a very immature man. Uh, so I watch, uh, I watch this show called South Park. Okay. Uh, this cartoon show. <laughs> and basically the whole plot of that show is it's, it's about these four boys and they live in this town and they all have parents and the parents are constantly getting themselves into these huge messes and making <laughs> things terrible. And the kids have to come and clean up their mess for it. <laughs> and, and the kids have to, the kids are the ones who can think critically and figure things out. And the adults are so distracted by all the world and everything. Going right. On. Right. But that's exactly what it is. You know, the, the, it's, we have to value our teachers. We also have to value our kids. And uh, we look at, you know, a lot of uh, the way things go in this country is we don't see exactly how our tax dollars are spent. Right. We don't see exactly right. what's happening in the classroom. <clears throat> you know, I, I did a poll on my Instagram recently about getting rid of Chromebooks and computers and bringing back handwritten agendas. Yes. And it was overwhelming. Parents wanted to go back to agendas yep. and therapists wanted to go back to agendas. But why is that not happening? Because schools have to make themselves stand, stand out. Oh, we give Chromebooks to our kids. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. give we give uh, up to date MacBooks. We give all these things. We use PowerSchool. We use the uh-huh. most. We use uh, Canvas, uh, uh, and it's just it's marketing tools. Because you talked about capitalism taking over the mm-hmm. kid industry. Yep. Capitalism has taken over education. 
and we have Princeton review. We have right. SAT prep. We have baby Einstein. We have Kumon. We have, uh, you know, it, when you really look at the common core, it was all about putting money in the pockets of Pearson and yes. the test makers and Scantron and all that stuff. Right. Um, and, and this is all to the detriment of our children. Of our children. Are, They're the ones are, suffering. Who are the future of the world. That's right. That's right. And yeah, just to go back to when politicians and technology vendors, see, that's the problem. They are who are making decisions about what our curriculum is going to look like. Politicians and technology vendors, that's that's capitalism. That's commercializing childhood. It's commercializing education. Yep. And so, yeah, there there is a, a definitely a, a, an, an issue uh, for sure. So to wrap this chapter up, it says, uh, starting on page 39, one of the most powerful solutions is not an app. It is not a standardized test or a computer tablet in the hands of every child or an educational fad. It does mm. not require turning kindergartens into first grades or turning elementary schools into stress factories. What is the purpose of education? If the answer is to increase childhood stress, to provide low quality or irrelevant data to politicians and administrators, to squander billions with a B, billions of dollars on unproductive or unproven learning interventions, and to make little or no sustained positive impact on childhood learning and on reducing achievement gaps, then we as a society are doing an excellent job with our schools. But if you believe, as we do, that the chief purposes of education are to inspire children to discover their passions, to learn how to learn, to love learning, and to become active, productive, healthy, compassionate, creative, and responsible members of society, then we must radically rethink the way we organize our schools. And that begins with building our schools upon a solid foundation of the learning language of children, which is play. There you go. And, and you know, in, in this whole thing, so I love that term educational fad because that, mm -hmm. seems, that seems to be what we're so focused on. But what, what I love about Posse is he's such a straight shooter and he tells it like it is. And he, he's, you know, uh, it does not require turning kindergartens into first grades or turning elementary schools into stress factories. Really, when you look at it, we're, we're not turning kindergartens into first grades. We're turning kindergartens into fifth grades, yeah. sixth, sixth yeah. grades. Yeah, it's crazy, uh, the expectations. So, so that was one area where I just disagreed with him, and he could have been a little bit more harsh because uh -huh. that's, that's, the, <laughs> that's the reality. Well, yeah, I will definitely say that the expectations, even, um, you know, young children, I'm talking two, three, four-year-olds, the expectations to sit still, to be quiet, to listen. You know, this whole idea of whole body listening. I'm like, adults can't oh even sit God. still and do that. Don't even get me started on that. So I agree. He was a little soft. The authors were a little soft in some of those areas. Yeah. But for the most part, um, I, I hope you guys enjoyed this. That was chapter two of our book, Let the Children Play. Mike and I are going to get busy reading chapter three. And what did I say chapter three is called? It's The Learning power of play. And it That's is going right. to be a real deep dive into executive function uh, and play. And I just know Mike is going to eat it up. It's going to be awesome. So It's a long one. I'm ready it for it. It is a long chapter. So we are going to sign off on uh, chapter two and get started on chapter three. And we hope you all join us uh, for that one. Bye, everybody. Take care.